0: We'll read Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 30. So Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who are called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple." But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Please be seated.
1: Morning. It's a privilege to meet together as the body of Christ. Will you join me in prayer, please? Father, I just want to lift up a brief prayer, a sincere prayer, that you would touch my lips. Make them move according to your spirit, so that your spirit may do the work you desire. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this week, I was drawn to consider the impact of these events in this text, verses 23 through 30, on Saul's mission, actually God's mission, given to Saul as a stewardship and a calling. I was especially drawn to consider the aspect of preparation, how or to what extent had God prepared Saul for these events? What did the Lord intend to accomplish in Saul himself through these challenges, as well as accomplish concerning the mission itself? Also, how did these events affect Paul's understanding of the mission? Since this is fairly early on. And thus, making him better prepared to fulfill it. And then, how did these events affect Saul's character, helping him to become more like Christ, thus making him better prepared to fulfill the mission, which was really Christ's mission? So far, I have concluded that this will be a lifelong study. <laughs> but so it uh, is limited in scope. And depth necessarily because this ended up being a very deep subject for me. The first step I took was to begin sketching out a timeline because as soon as I began uh, being concerned about some related passages, it became apparent that there was more to this story and more to God's purpose in it than a simple reading of this passage uh, alone that would reveal. So, the message is not about a timeline, though. It's about the impact of the events in verses 23 through 30 on the life of Saul, the life of the church, and how Saul and those events fit into God's eternal purpose. First, let's consider some examples, though, of how God prepares us as vessels for his purpose and glory. These are some examples taken uh, mostly from the Old Testament found them helpful just in, uh, in going through some more familiar characters and how God used them, prepared them for his service, uh, and then to consider how this fit in with Paul, where he where fit in relation to these two examples. These are uh, rather extreme opposing, not opposing, but very different examples. First, we look at Moses. And several things we'll consider. Just the basic training aspect, how he grew up, and uh, his calling. Uh, And if if applicable, uh, rejection, opposition, he might have experienced. And often there is a humbling part to the Lord's preparation. Sometimes even we use the expression, death of a vision. I think we see this in the life of Moses that we will look at first. And then, eventually the Lord gets to a point where uh, there's a commission. He sends somebody or or more fully acknowledges their purpose. So, uh, just drawing from Acts 7, you can turn there. There's several verses to look at, beginning in verse 22. Basic training aspect. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. We're not going to go into detail of his very beginning. We're probably quite familiar with Moses and the basket in the Nile how he grew up in the palace. But this was something that the scriptures talk about as his training. His calling, though. In the next verse, we see that when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Verse 25 says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. You might recognize these verses are from Stephen's lengthy defense. then we see the, the rejection, the opposition aspect in the next verse. And the next day, he appeared to two of them, two of his Hebrew brothers, as they were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? When <clears throat> and then when Pharaoh heard of this matter he sought to kill Moses You find that from uh, not from this text here but Exodus 2.15 so Moses fled into the land of Midian and he was there for more than 40 years making him 80 years old do you imagine that Moses might have given up from all appearances it would seem But God chisels away at that which is in his way. Because confidence in the flesh, he teaches us abundantly in his word. That that is in opposition to his glory and his work. So this is one of the things that was happening in Moses during all these years. We find how how much that had happened in the Lord's appearing then to him and calling him, which we'll look at. In Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Verse 2, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he spoke to Moses. Skip down to verse 6. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now listen for the eye here. And what God is saying. I have surely seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cry. And I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. In verse 10 then he says to Moses. Come now therefore and I will send you. And Moses says to God, Who am I? Moses seems to have missed the main point, didn't he? But God responds simply, forbearingly, and graciously. He didn't answer Moses' question, Who am I? He could have. The answer might have been hurtful. But instead, he says, I will certainly be with you. Our confidence in the flesh must be replaced by confidence in God, confidence that He is with us and for us. That's all we need. He sees, He's prepared to do His good work. We need to be willing when He calls us to co labor, which means we're mostly along for the ride because He does the work by His Spirit. We might be tempted, in this case, to think that it always takes God many years to prepare us to fulfill His calling on our lives. But remember, with Moses, there was also the element of waiting. Waiting for God's timing and for His people in Egypt to cry out for deliverance. They weren't quite there yet. They had for those many, many years. Now, It's getting intense. It's going to be more intense. But it's now intense enough to where they are really crying out. Let's now look at a very different example. The example of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth. So Jeremiah was the family of priests. But many of these priests in those days were corrupt. Once good King Josiah was out of the picture, straying hearts led the nation astray. When the word of the Lord first came to Jeremiah, Josiah was still reigning. But shortly that changed. His son is in his place, and things are very different. Suddenly, Seemingly without adequate preparation, certainly without warning, Jeremiah was called by God to serve his purpose. In verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you will speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. Says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. We see that element there that What really matters, the difference maker, is God Himself when He chooses to act. Skip down to verse 17. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city. And an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests. That would be his own family. And against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to deliver you. In just these two examples, we see that God uses very different ways to prepare and to call us to serve Him according to the purpose He has for us, according to His infinite wisdom and knowledge, and all according to His master plan. We cannot anticipate or limit Him. We can only obey or disobey Him. But did you note the common element there? It's already somewhat emphasized. God's faithful promise I am with you. I have called you. I will be with you and help you. My presence is your supply, and he said elsewhere, and your great reward. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, there is another common element that can be seen as these lives are followed through Scripture on the job training. Especially you might consider Jeremiah who just abruptly receives God's commission. God will not hear of anything else. He has purpose for him and he put his hand on him. Regardless of our perceived preparation ahead of time, we must all learn obedience by the things we suffer. No servant is above his master. Whether we seem to have much preparation, many years, many activities, many studies. However, out of the blue, God puts his hand upon us. He says, I've chosen you. Whatever the case, his will and his purpose must stand. So before we look into God's calling upon Saul of Tarsus and the Lord's preparation... He is his chosen vessel. Let's briefly consider the very unique example of our Lord and Master, Jesus. What basic training did he have? The eternal Word of God, always with the Father. He had come to earth in the flesh, he drank in his own Word as a boy, and then as a man. As he grew in wisdom and stature, he was learning obedience by the things he was suffering. And he continued to the end perfectly. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. You recognize that terminology? He, Jesus, who would become the mediator of the New Covenant, first became the perfect example of it. His law was within his heart. What about his calling? Jesus had a calling on his life from eternity. But there came a time on the earth, when he was on the earth, when he knowingly embraced it with a heart of perfect obedience. Again, our perfect example. Whatever the Father's will was, that's what he was there for. And in space and time, he confirmed that and walked it out perfectly. So, at a particular point, this was when uh, he was baptized, by John the Baptist. God the Father publicly acknowledged him as his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. He was led into the wilderness then and tested sorely but without sin. And he returned in the power and the anointing of the Spirit, prepared to fulfill his most high calling. I mentioned another aspect previously of a humbling part of preparation. Concerning Jesus, this may be a little bit tricky. The Son of God had already humbled himself to take on human flesh. (laughs) More of a humbling than what any of us ever could. Yet, he humbled himself further to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found In appearance, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. From John 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. There is no equal to that selfless act of humility and perfect obedience. Now, with these examples in mind, Moses... Jeremiah, and then the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's consider the calling of Saul of Tarsus by the Lord Jesus. I want to look at some context leading up to verses 23 through 30. Let's consider for a minute the situation Saul found himself in, recorded in chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, recorded in chapter 7. We know how strong he was then in in persecution of the church. As a young religious up-and-comer, Saul was no doubt proud of himself. He was important. He was being seen as important and doing important work. And he was filled with youthful energy and zeal. He was fired up with anger over what he imagined to be a just cause. He was hounding the Christians, putting them in chains, dragging them back to Jerusalem and supporting their imprisonment and death. He was doing his important part to stamp out this blight upon Judaism from his perspective. Suddenly, this aspect is a little like Jeremiah, isn't it? Suddenly, we're reading from Acts 26, beginning in verse 13. Paul is testifying before King Agrippa. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise. Stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. The Lord doesn't need to ask our opinion, does he? Or plead for our cooperation. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And some verses from Psalm 2. The prophetic verses about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus as if Jesus was speaking here. "'The Lord said to me, "'You are my son. "'Today I have begotten you. "'Ask of me, and I will give you the nations "'for your inheritance, "'and the ends of the earth for your possession. "'You shall break them with a rod of iron. "'You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. "'Now therefore, be wise, O kings. "'Be instructed, you judges of the earth. "'Serve the Lord with fear, "'and rejoice with trembling.' kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. When the Lord speaks and declares his will, there ought to be only one response, and there is only one safe response. What might have happened if When the resurrected and exalted Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to Paul, Saul at that point, brighter than the sun, and spoke to him from heaven and gave him instructions, and then if Saul had dragged his feet, or argued, or questioned the Lord's wisdom, like Moses did, I shudder to think what might have happened to Saul, given the calling upon his life. But we do not have to wonder about whether God's eternal purpose would have been accomplished. Nothing could stop that. The principle is well stated in the book of Esther, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And Mordecai told him to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you see God's hand on Saul? Not just right now when he has appeared to him. But placing him where he is. There's much to this. There's much to to learn and appreciate about the Lord and his preparation. and Also much to learn for ourselves. Thankfully, we don't have to get stuck on the question of what would happen if Saul didn't obey. Because he did. After his initial, who are you, Lord? His next question was, Lord, what do you want me to do? Isn't that the right question to ask in that situation? As Paul testified, again in Acts 26, speaking to King Agrippa, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This Acts 26 passage is one of several passages that I will draw on today, but not read in their entirety because of their length. But I want to strongly encourage you to read them later and consider them deeply. They were very helpful to me in understanding the purpose and scope of Paul's calling, as well as the intensity of his faithful response of service to the Lord. His abrupt and wholehearted about-face is truly a model response to the call of God on a life. Please make a note of these passages for further personal study. Acts 15, the whole of the chapter. Acts 22, verses 1 through 21. Acts 26, verses 1 through 23. Galatians 11, sorry, Galatians 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10. And then 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 12 verse 10. And finally, Philippians 3, verses 3 through 16. As I mentioned initially, the first step I took was to begin sketching out a timeline because as soon as I began looking at related passages, it became apparent that there was more to this story. In Acts 9, verses 23 through 30, more than what a simple reading of the passage alone would reveal, more to God's purpose in it. Pardon me for just a second here while I spread out some notes. I have those, those, uh, most of those whole passages printed out here. I can read them. want we'll to look at then at uh, Acts 9, beginning at 23. After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. I mentioned something that became apparent to me just almost right at the start, and it's the, the timing of this. Now, after many days were passed... <clears throat> That's not too specific. It could be a few days. There's precedent in the scriptures. It could be as much as three years. Some other passages shed some light on this. In particular, in Galatians chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul is recounting how he persecuted the church and how he was rising through the ranks of the religious elite there. But he says in verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia... And returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then Paul gives one of these rare statements. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Clearly, it was important to him that they understand that he has been very specific. The things that he said, he has meant very carefully to say. So, how does this impact this text here? Because he's making the point, and and I want to make this a very sure point here. Galatians, the letter to the Galatians is not at all written to establish some precise timeline. That is not his point at all. But he just made the statement that he has carefully spoken this, written this. So in the process of him trying to accomplish something else, which is one reason I gave you such a lengthy passage here through Galatians, it's worth getting a good start considering that, what his purpose was here it is very much related to his calling. And he, he will say some things in this passage about that as well as some of these others. But, but here, this Galatian letter, he's making the point that his apostolic calling is not connected underneath the apostles in Jerusalem. That it is completely separate from that. It's not that there would be any desire other than the Lord's desire, his purpose in it, for, for having that happen. But this is what the Lord did. He appeared to Paul himself. He revealed things to Paul. As we look at, as we put several of these passages together, begin to see that, that much of the revelation of the gospel was given to Paul in these first few years because he very shortly began to preach it. And his point here is, he didn't go to Jerusalem for three years. He did go there, and when he did was 15 days. And if you look back in Acts 9, down in verse... Well, just look at the verses 26 through 28. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, at first there was some uh, time spent. We don't know how much time, but he's he's trying to join the disciples and they'll have none of that. They're scared of him. Finally, it takes Barnabas, son of encouragement. (laughs) And it seems that Barnabas also has some antenna, so to speak, on what the Lord is doing. We see some evidence throughout that. So he's alert to what God has been doing. He's already seeing some of this happening. He sees Paul as, as being called of God. So he brings him t- together with the apostles and shares with them how he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus and how he has been preaching boldly at Damascus. So look at verse 28. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Out of a 15-day span, he loses some time trying to make connection. Finally, he's able to do that with Barnabas. Then in the remaining time, he's going in and out. What's he doing going in and out? We find elsewhere that he is preaching, not only in Jerusalem, but in surrounding areas, Judea. So he's a busy guy. He's not there and this is this point in Galatians. He's not there to get the gospel content from the apostles. He already has that. He has a commission by God. So you know considering what happened earlier in chapter 9, it was a Jeremiah moment for Saul. <laughs> Very much so much more so, light from heaven, voice from heaven, blinded, another brother sent, restored, he's baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately begins to preach Christ. I want to refer to this Uh, Acts 26 passage. Read just a little more of that. I read one of the verses before when he's speaking to King Agrippa. He says, But rise and stand on your feet. This is the Lord speaking to Paul. Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things that I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance." So this is very much apart from what the Lord is doing in Jerusalem amongst the Jews. And you see here that uh, Luke's account in Acts, uh, quite true, but Paul has filled in some of this, some things that the Lord spoke to him that Luke did not elaborate on. He gave him a very clear calling. Sending, to, sending them to the Gentiles. You let him know that right up front. That's where he's headed. And very early on, he knows the gospel because God has revealed it to him, as we see that elsewhere. Uh, especially in, uh, in Galatians. We find then that in Galatians, uh, as we read on through and reach chapter 2, it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now, this is most likely the trip when Judaizers had come to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas disputed with them. They went to Jerusalem. This is in Acts 15, this whole account. We find out here that although it's not mentioned in Acts 15, Titus is with him. And it says, He went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred, this disturbance. You see later that it wasn't for lack of trying for him to be circumcised. But Paul stood firm. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, speaking of the apostles, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, As the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who effectively worked in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. The language there might initially strike you as almost as if Paul was leaning toward some measure of disrespect. Not really. We're not going to read it, but if you go on from there, beginning in verse 11, the next verse, this is when he has to confront Peter. I just put this out here. I ask you to study it later. But to consider this point, considering Peter's stature, eminent among the apostles, consider the point that Paul makes in one of his letters about uh, not accepting an accusation against an elder, except by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Not, not that this is happening here, but it, it shows the importance of being careful, especially with leaders. But he also says, those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all. This is how serious this is. What follows in verse 11 in chapter 2 onto the rest of the chapter is Paul's address to Peter. It's a very pointed defense of the of the main element of the gospel. Something that Peter had unwittingly backed off on because he had, first, he had been eating with the Gentiles. As the Lord had already established and set him free from that with Cornelius, he had already addressed the rest of those, the, disciples, the apostles' the disciples in Jerusalem, and yet, here at Antioch, he went back when some others came. We don't, we're not told. Peter gives no explanation. Paul gives no explanation of what is in Peter's thoughts. We don't know that. But we do know the impact. Paul is making the point that this has the effect of having moved away as a Jew. Moved away from uh, being restricted and not eating with Gentiles. Having... Moved away from that on the basis of Christ finished work on the cross. Based on now Jew and Gentile made one. By going back it has the effect he even uses the language of being a minister of sin. Is Christ a minister of sin? He asks rhetorically. Certainly not. He answers. But this is the effect of what had happened there. So We could maybe sometime, as the Lord wills, we could look into that further. But I just want to put some thoughts out here, give you to consider how important this is. Because this is related to to the. Paul is making these these statements to make it abundantly clear that, that God has called him. That the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and delivered the gospel to him apart from the Jerusalem apostles. This is critical for his ministry. And he's, because right here with these Galatians in this letter, he's having to defend them and call them back to grace on this basis. That's why he has done this. So, what, what this also then shows is that it, there's a couple different possibilities on the timing of this, if you look in Acts 9, because and it's not, it's not a critical thing. It can either be, from this Galatian letter, either three years and the 14 years he's talking about, or it could be he may be referring to both from this point of conversion so that it might be overlapping 3 and 14. Either way, is fine. <laughs> it, it has it has, it has, but I had to work that out on the timeline. It that's not significant, really. Now what is significant is that three years elapsed before he spent time with Peter, and that was only 15 days. It was only when he 14 years later. So it could have been 14 years or 17 years after conversion, which really just determines just how many years after. Christ's death on the cross, and Stephen's stoning before, before Paul was converted. That's just an unknown, but it's not significant if you think about it. So, so this, when he goes to Jerusalem, that is when they talk over the issues of the gospel. And, and they find out, yes, it's the same gospel. Same Lord revealed it, but Paul was just doing, you could say, due due diligence, and and also honoring them as well. But notice he met. He says he met privately. That's so that such a thing doesn't get aired out in the whole group. Which that that part of it, because it's about to be. Because the issue is on the table because of the Judaizers that came to Antioch so there's all this interplay here and so then I ask you to consider how did Saul move how did he get from persecutor of the church to stalwart defender of the gospel alone in Antioch Peter the apostle from Jerusalem goes back and began separating himself, wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And the text even says that even Barnabas was pulled away from this, temporarily. It just shows that the the pressure, the power of numbers. So why didn't Paul do the same? Paul, raised Jewish. We find in some of these accounts, uh, very much so, raised. He studied under Gamaliel as a youth. Just steeped. In Phariseeism, and rising above his peers, how does he go through such an about face? The power of God and the Lord Jesus Christ revealing revelation after revelation after revelation to Paul for his purpose. Does he does he do that routinely? <laughs> no, no. He, in fact. Jew and Gentile is one. I think it's pretty clear then that he's taking care of business in Jerusalem. He's taking it with the Jews. He's taking care of business with the Gentiles. That's done. So don't don't look to go off to Arabia and get revelations these days. Instead, test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. And we test it against the word of God. So, Paul in in Second Corinthians is definitely dealing with a kind of a similar issue, not quite the same, but they're they're wavering, they're not understanding his call and and, and uh, respecting his his apostleship and his place as as the church planter, their father in the faith, as you would, and he's appealing to them and. He's, you recall he's uh, talking about visions and it's uncomfortable for him it's the only time that he does this and he speaks of how it was, he's just compelled to do it in order to again like the Galatians to call them back to solid faith because they're, they're just being they're being tricked and called away by those that are just wanting to make disciples for themselves. Paul was firm in making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's calling us to have the mind of Christ. But anyway, in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 12 is when he speaks of of these uh, visions. And then he says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses. Read over some of these and consider what Paul went through. And it starts out in this, this language of comparison uh, to, to others that are boasting of themselves. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. That was an intense beating. The minus one part was so that the Jews could feel that they had been slightly merciful, and it was considered one lash short of death. That was their intent to inflict it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In the journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, such as he encountered in Galatians church. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, not just the churches but individuals in them, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? But if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. We see then that it's, it wasn't just the Jews... That were lying in wait. The whole government was set up. The Jews had won them over, evidently. Some of the many perils that he went through. But listen to his heart spoken in Philippians chapter 3. He had just recounted his pedigree, his training, his rise up through the ranks. But he says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul, to his dying day, continues to have that sense, not just of his personal calling, but the calling on his life for the Lord's purpose, to preach the gospel, to expand the horizons. He was always pressing farther outward. Now, this was his particular calling. But by, by hearing these accounts, which was from different times in his life, in the life of the church, the Gentile church in particular, I want to then encourage you to consider how this beginning was a preparation. No sooner does he come to the Lord, at least in the first few years, it's, it's unclear whether the event of, of Damascus happened before or after he went to Arabia, where it seems that that would have been the, the time frame and so probably the location of, of uh, many of these revelations of the gospel itself. From the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But you have Him uh, driven out of there at the point of death. And then Jerusalem, driven out again at the point of death. And and they send Him away. Brethren send Him away. No, No doubt, not harshly. They're wanting to protect Him. But think of the rejection aspect. He's received this call. And it's all new to him. Look at how it starts. Rejection. Suffering. The Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. In that time when he was driven out of Jerusalem, there's another element here that we find in Acts 22. He's sharing how that he had to... When he was in Jerusalem, he was praying in the temple... And he was in a trance, seen a vision, and saw the Lord saying to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. pauls is not arguing with the Lord, but, but he's, it's a wonderment to him. Like, how could they not receive him? Look at what God has done in my life. Look at what I did before. Could, is, is not this radical change that you have made in me, is this not going to impact them? The answer is no. Their hearts are hard. Time is up. And then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So again, I just want you to see how these other accounts add to this story because in verse 30, when the brethren found out that they were attempting to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. But in fact, alongside that, the Lord has appeared to Paul and said, Make haste and get out. So, No, he wasn't driven away. Yes, he was driven away, but no, the Lord directed him away. And so you see that even though Paul is suffering the the rejection, the, the being pursued to death that he referred to in 2 Corinthians 11, but the Lord is with him. This, the Lord directs him, but this also gives him the sense of the Lord with him to protect him. And this, so early in his ministry, supports him and propels him. And that's why you see from Paul in the New Testament such incredible Strength, perseverance, tough guy, but tough because of what the Lord had done in his life, how he had prepared him. It was a radical calling, but the Lord did not stop there. All these events were, were brought to bear on his character And we find through these other accounts that the Lord was much more specific in terms of the ministry that he was calling him to and giving him specific direction. So Paul was not, as you might otherwise think later on, that he's just kind of making up his own path and deciding what he's going to do. The Lord continues to direct him and stir him to keep pressing outward because that is what the Lord Jesus Christ put his hand Upon him, for that—that was the purpose. Paul is such a dynamic character in the New Testament, and we might be have a tendency to just think, "Oh, you know, <laughs> Paul—it seemed just to be able to do so much, and you know, we don't have that calling. I can't do that. I—I well, I can say that I can't do that." It's more true, I think, to say, I can't do that because he hasn't called me. If he were to call me, could I? Could you? Because, it's, or do, or are we going to act, are we going to say what Moses did? Who am I? Well, we, we ought to say that in the sense of humility. But not in the sense of, no, Lord, I won't or can't. Because if he puts his hand upon us, if he calls us, he who has called us is faithful. He will do it, he will strengthen us. His promise is always, I will be with you. Big or small, short term, long term, it doesn't matter. The Lord has a calling for each one of us, does he not? Hasn't he placed each one in the body as he sees fit? Hasn't he given each one a measure of faith? Is his grace upon us for our purpose or for his? His grace is wonderful. Thank God that he saved us. But don't stop there because he saved us for a purpose. Paul's ministry is huge. Do not let the 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 hugeness of it and the impact of it diminish the fact that god was in him showing himself strong just like he spoke to jeremiah i have made you like bronze like iron i've given you a steel spine You stand. You'll stand alone, but I'll be with you. See, that's what Paul had to do that day in Antioch. To defend the truth of the gospel. Was that Paul's power? Where did the steel spine in that day come from? Was that Paul's steel spine? Or the Lord's? To a yielded vessel that he had called, and the vessel had said, Yes, I will go. Let us not sell short the grace of God, the power of God to fulfill whatever he calls us to do. This is what I got out of this, what seemed at first to be just a narrative. And I pray that the Lord would continue to as you would study at home to be stirred to think especially these last few thoughts that I've shared. I want to end with reading a few verses from Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That meant something to him, that gospel. Which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Each one of you. You also are the called of Jesus Christ. You have received grace. We have not received grace apostleship as he is speaking of himself but you have received his spirit a spirit with raised Christ from the dead is resident in the believer so let us contemplate this and give attention give ear to the lord Be ready to say yes. I'll be your humble servant because your strength shows up in weak people. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness. Each one of us can say that and walk in whatever calling. Let us seek him to know what he would have us to do Display his grace to enlarge his influence, the gospel around us. Father, I thank you for the encouragement of your scriptures, for the lessons, for the challenges. for the humbling that it is to us. We need that when it's a result of our just sitting back. In some ways, because we can. The culture we live in makes it easy. I know, Lord, in my heart, that you you would not have us take it easy. We'd be like the one who dug a hole in the earth and later brought back what you had given unused unexpanded the power that you had given your very Holy Spirit in us had been wasted and we present soiled what you had given us may it never be you are worthy of more than that, Lord. We pray for grace in our lives to be stirred, to seek your faith with a whole heart, knowing that you will strongly support those whose heart is completely yours. Your promise is true today that you will be with us to accomplish all that you desire through me. Yielded vessel. I ask it in Jesus' name that you would work that into our hearts and minds. May we obey you from the heart. Amen.